We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Darlington Nagby is the most skilled American soccer player in the game, male or female. His ability to maintain possession is uncanny and unequaled when it comes to American players. I'm sure there are fans of Christian Pulisic, Tobin Heath, or insert name here that disagree with me. You're wrong, and it's not even close. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the underappreciated greatness of Darlington Nagby. Our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to talk about the uh, UCL draw. During our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the relationship between the U.S. men's national team and Major League Soccer. In our back three, we're going to talk a little Carly Lloyd and so much more. But first, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you on this Tuesday, Mossy? I am good, rocking my Neymar PSG jersey, which I thought I was going to have to burn, but uh, as it turns out, it's good for It's got a year. little more life in it. Yes. Evidently. We're going to talk about that later on. How was your weekend? Well, you and I had a bizarre <laughs> weekend work Eventful weekend, yes. yes. Uh, so just to let people know what happened, we had a lot of Bundesliga coverage planned. Uh, we were there at the crack of dawn yep. Saturday, uh, getting ready for Bayern Mines. Coutinho's first start. Lewandowski just signed the contract extension. We were going to chat about all that. We were excited. And then, without getting into all the technico mumbo-jumbo, but <laughs> I guess all the servers went down at once in the building. There was this massive technical snafu there, and we were not able to get on television. Frankly, even just getting the game on, the world feed, it was, was, it was, was no guarantee. The, we were yeah. holding our breath there, and it was a big enough problem that they had to pull the plug on Sunday, too. It was like a two-day problem to fix. So uh, it, 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 was, it was a huge problem, and you knew it. I knew it from the moment I got there because usually because, <laughs> you know, we get up at 3 o'clock or whatever, and we, 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 we get in, and usually the security downstairs is just kind of watching television, hello, and all that kind of stuff, and all hell was breaking loose. There were people <laughs> there that I've never seen before, so you knew it was big and, and walking around the building. And look, this happens, and you got to roll with it. you got to be able to adjust, uh, and they did, but unfortunately our Bundesliga coverage – 
uh, was canceled. Do you count that as working or not, what we did this weekend? Because while we were in and while you especially preparing and writing scripts and doing all that kind of stuff, it never ultimately made air. I think the Saturday we were in, we were working. Sunday, maybe we did all the prep, which maybe is considered working, but we didn't get the final opportunity to, to let it play out on air. I, I, I do still get paid. I made sure to check on that. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want but, that but to again, change. But again, Sunday was a real shame because we had a very U.S. national team themed show. It was the last games leading into the international break, which we have two games on FS1 against Mexico and Uruguay. And we had American starting Josh Sargent, Bremen Augsburg. He scores a nice goal. Stefan and Morales started for Dusseldorf against Frankfurt. Yep. And so uh, we missed out on all that. Would have been fun. It's a bummer. It was a bummer. But it's, you know, it's still, the, the games are still there and we, we will continue. Everything has been fixed. So everything's back on course. So after this international break, we'll be back at it when it comes to Bundesliga and MLS and all the different things uh, uh, that are going on. All right, Moss, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Darlington Nagby is the most skilled American soccer player in the game, male or female. For those that don't know, Nagby is a 29-year-old midfielder who arrived in America at the age of 11 after he and his family escaped civil war in their home country of Liberia. He grew up in Ohio, won a national championship at the University of Akron, and then went on to win MLS Cups with both the Portland Timbers and Atlanta United, where he now plays. Darlington Nagby is also an enigma, a polarizing figure to many American fans. He frustrates, confuses, and even angers fans who often complain that he doesn't score, he doesn't shoot, he doesn't go forward, and he hasn't dominated in his time with the U.S. men's national team. In short, given his talent, he should be so much better. I guess this is fair, but I say that even if this is as good as it gets, it's unprecedented, and it's something truly to behold. His ability to maintain possession is uncanny and unequaled when it comes to American players. He consistently gets himself and his team out of trouble with a grace and ease that is as beautiful as it is valuable. Time and time again, he makes something incredibly difficult look easy. He is a safety valve that too often is taken for granted. Now, if you believe that possessing the ball is important, then there's nothing more important than players who can possess the ball. And there is no one better at that than Darlington Nagby. I'm sure there are fans of Christian Pulisic, Tobin Heath, or insert name here, that disagree with me. You're wrong, and it's not even close. Darlington Nagby may never be the player you want, but if you value keeping the ball, he's the player you need. All right, Mossy, there's my uh, State of the Union, a little ode to Darlington Nagby. First off, uh, you have watched this young man play. Would you agree with my assessment? And I don't want to make it out like nobody out there appreciates him. Uh, that's that's not the case, the case at all. I just think that for a player who, when I watch him, I am in awe so many times consistently. It is amazing to me how many people don't like him as a player. And this isn't this doesn't just apply to him. There are players out there that are these enigmas where you you think they're talented, but there's a lot of people out there that just don't want them on their team for whatever reason. Uh, I'm a big Nagby fan. I love possession football, so I definitely appreciate the value of a player that helps you retain the ball. I thought he was terrific in that Campeones Cup match against Club America. Had a beautiful assist to Joseph Martinez this past weekend and a loss to Philadelphia. But the national team story with him has gotten a little bit weird. So he was left out of the squad for these two upcoming games. 
gave an interview at the time intimating that he had been passed over. He said, well, I guess Burhalter wants to look at other players, and that's fine. I know Frank DeBoer sort of campaigned for him, said he should have been in the squad. He's one of the best midfielders in MLS. And then uh, there are reports this week that he actually turned down the call to these games and also to the Gold Cup this past summer. If that's true, how disappointing would that be for you? It's disappointing because I think he makes the team better. And I, I want to see him play for the U.S. national team because everything we just said, his ability to hold the ball. And look, while there are moments where we will run over other teams, the reality is we're trying to win a World Cup. And in order to do that, you're going to have to go through teams that are better than you, some teams that are much better than you. And so having that outlet, that security, that safety valve of somebody who can hold the ball, that you can give it to him, and you know you're going to get the possession and not the loss of possession, I think that is that is so valuable. When it comes to this situation in particular, look, I, I don't know the inner workings, but this is what I do know. And I mentioned it in the State of the Union. The path uh, that this young man has taken to where he is right now is unlike anything you or I or anybody in this room or most people listening can comprehend or relate to. And I don't think that there is anything personal when it comes to the relationship between him and the coach and Greg Berhalter. I don't think that there's anything personal in terms of a hostility or an offense that has happened between him and the United States Soccer Federation, uh, like other players uh, uh, that, have, uh, that have had problems in general. I don't think that there's an overarching problem that he sees with either the Federation or soccer, and that's why he's doing it. So I don't think it's a, a cause for him or anything like that. I truly believe that he feels that his responsibility is to provide for himself, his family, and his extended family, and he is getting paid and getting paid very, very well by the success that he has had on the domestic front for the club teams that he has, uh, that he has played for. And I think he's most comfortable doing that because of what it affords him to do. And I can't, I can't argue with that. I've always said, I don't. I would much rather a player say, "I don't want to go to the national team," than be forced in and have a player playing for the national team that doesn't want to be there. That that's fine if he doesn't want to play for the national team, and it's not anything that that the national team can do. Greg Berhalter can't do it. By all accounts, Greg Berhalter has actually been very, very positive and supportive of Darlington Nagby, even when and if he has said, I don't want to come in. So it's not, once again, that, that conflict of personality that sometimes, that sometimes we have. So uh, that's, is it concerning to me? It's only concerning from a selfish standpoint, my personal selfishness that I want a Darlington Nagby. My God, if I could have had a Darlington Nagby in our midfield when I was playing for the national team, because the only person that I even remotely would put in his sphere would be a Tab Ramos. And I've always talked about Tab being a man out of time. But we didn't have the players that had, number one, the skill, which is why I say he is the, uh, he is the most skilled American soccer player that we have playing the game today. Because it's important. It doesn't necessarily mean he's the best doesn't necessarily mean he's the most valuable. doesn't necessarily mean that he's right for your team or my team or anything like that. But when it comes to pure skill, which is what it is, and it's also a combination of, of courage that he has to be able to do these things, he does not lose the ball. And he is, he is a fixer on the field. He will make things right when all hell is breaking loose because either he will maintain possession or he'll get fouled. And that is, a, that is just a gift to have on a team. And it's a pity that we're not going to have it from a national team. Because there's nobody right now that is even close. 
when Berhalter was asked about it, he kind of danced around it. He said, I'm not going to reveal details about our conversations. But he also said, and he was speaking in general terms, not just about Nagmi here, that he's not the type to just rule out a player, that he he's willing to bring players back into the fold. If... Nagby uh, did enter the national team picture again. Where would he fit into a Greg Berhalter midfield that I think is going to increasingly be built around McKinney, Adams, and Pomacall, who I love? And we'll, sure. talk, we'll talk more about the roster later against Mexico and Uruguay. But uh, where would Nagby fit in? Is he a starting player for the U.S.? Or I just think a squad he is player? in camp. He is a legitimate starter. And you, you mentioned Tyler Adams. Now, Tyler Adams is going to be that hybrid type right, of right, right back. So he could still be involved with all of those three. Paxton, I think... If, if I had to start a game right now between Paxton and, and Darlington Nagby, it's going to be Darlington Nagby. Now, keep in mind, when Weston McKinney is there, that dude goes. And you don't, <laughs> you don't want to rein him in. You want to give him the ability to go. So having someone that can control the rhythm, control the ball, uh, that, that you're not relying on from an offensive standpoint, because he's never going to be that, which is what I said in the State of the Union. He's never going to be the player that a lot of people want. He's never going to score tons of goals. He's never going to shoot. You know, he's never going to be the man that's pulling the strings when it comes to the attack. And that's that's okay, because what I see him doing, and I don't want to get all elitist and sanctimonious and in the weeds when we come to because I will sit down with anybody, whether they've watched soccer or not, and I defy them to watch Darlington Nagby and not to be able to see the value, which is why it blows my mind so many times when I hear people say, no, he's not for me. He's, he's, he's not a player that I want on my team. I want him on my team, whatever team that is. It's interesting because he was a little bit more productive earlier in his career with Portland in terms of goals and assists. Uh, the two arguments I've heard against him right now are that, that he's not productive enough, and also his age. He's 29. Yeah. He's not a player that's going to impart any World Cup experience or anything like that. There's not a lot of room for him to grow or get better at this point, so he sort of fits in this weird in-between uh, where he's not a Bradler outdoor that brings you all this national team experience, and he's also not a young guy that you can develop. So is there any... Uh, you have any sympathy yeah, for that point? Yeah, I mean, I think the age is a problem. I think, look, I don't think that he is going to be involved going forward. It doesn't mean that Greg Berhalter isn't going to try, and that's part of Greg Berhalter's jobs and Ernie Stewart's jobs to, you know, keep keep going in there and keep knocking on the door and saying, how's it going? He's that good. He deserves that type of attention. But I think that ultimately when all is said and done, we are going to be left with, for a lot of people, what is an unfulfilled type of potential in terms of the way that we look at Darlington Nagby. I think a lot of people many years from now will say, hey, wonderfully talented, but could have been so much more, either in the way that he played or the mentality they had. And whether that's related to his mentality of not necessarily pushing the, 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 uh, you know, pushing the envelope and pushing in terms of going forward, being creative, or the mentality that says, I'm okay not going into the national team, which I can't relate to, I can't understand, but at least I can respect it given, given what I know. And once again, I don't want anybody in the national team that doesn't want to be there. That's, that's, that's not good for the player, and that's not good for the team, but maybe that changes going forward. But again, I'll end on this. It's not uh, an unforgivable sin for you that he's turned down these calls. If a few months from now he changes his mind on that, he wants back in, you would welcome him back in with open arms. Uh, ab absolutely. And by the way, for, for anybody out there that thinks that it's – it's because of you know some uh, responsibility that you have to your country. While I always looked at it like that, in no way, shape, or form would I judge somebody else for not going to the national team in terms of shirking their responsibility to their country and to uh, and to the flag or anything like that. That has nothing. That has nothing to do with it. Once once again, I don't want to be surrounded by people that don't want to be there. As a matter of fact, I will take a lesser player that wants to be there 
uh, absolutely over a player that is a better player that doesn't want to be there. So, you know, it's, it's, and, and for those of you that are, that are listening out there that don't know who Darlington Nagby is, spend some time. Watch this, watch this player. And if you're a young player out there, it's, it's not sexy. It's not something that is going to make the highlight reel every single time. But I think a lot, of, I think a lot can be said for the way that the people that you play with react to you. And time and time again, when you meet players who have played with him or against Darlington Nagby, they are as much in praise and in awe of what he can do because it is so unique. And if we had two or three of these guys that were able to do this, no problem. But once again, if you really believe in possessing the ball, which I think Greg Berhalter does, and which I think a lot of people believe should be the goal of the national team going forward, if you truly believe it, there is nobody better. And so that's why, from a selfish perspective, uh, that's who I want. And I was watching the game this weekend. By the way, the game this weekend that Atlanta lost in Philadelphia. And kudos to the Philadelphia Union for what they have done. But even in a game that he lost, you could just see the quality that he, that he oozes. I don't think he's ever going to do anything overseas or go anywhere, go anywhere else. And so many, many years from now, when we're thinking of Darlington Nagby, I will, I will always think of him as one of the greatest uh, American players to play the game even without the national team component that he has because of what he can do and the unique way that he can do it unlike anybody else that I have seen and certainly unlike anybody else that exists at this moment right now. And that's why I think Greg Berhalter will continue to pick up the call, uh, the phone and call him as he should going forward. All right, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again, the time for Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? Uh, my case is that the rest of Europe is looking to knock England off its perch. That's and always good. The draw for the Champions League group stage took place last week. The group stage gets underway later this month. We'll go through each of the groups in a minute, and later in the back three we'll discuss some of the transfers that these clubs have made. But I think the overarching theme this season is England looking to build on its success. For years, we wondered, for all the hub-hub around the Premier League, the financial muscle, the big-name managers, when was it going to pay dividends in Europe? We had about a seven, eight-year stretch there where it was all about Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Messi, Ronaldo, and England kept getting shut out. Well, last season, they broke through in a major way. We had an all-English Champions League final, uh, Liverpool defeating Tottenham in Madrid. Tottenham had eliminated Manchester City in an epic quarterfinal tie. And now the question is, and these things tend to be cyclical, can England make it stick this season? Is this the start of a run of English domination in the Champions League? Or can Spain bounce back or a Bayern Munich or a Juventus and make this English thing seem like a one-year blip? I can't wait to find out. The Champions League is my favorite competition, and I can't wait for the group stage to get underway. All right. Well, what, uh, what stands out just initially to when the, these, uh, these, these teams came out or these groups came out? We have some some great matchups. Uh, there's some top-heavy groups where there's a big two, and then and you kind of know who's going to go through, and it's just a question of first versus second. And then there are a couple in there, a couple of group of death candidates where I'm not so sure. 
but yeah, I mean, just just to play off uh, quickly, my my uh, Mossy makes the case. Uh, do you think Liverpool and Manchester City are a cut above everybody else this season, or is that overstating it a little bit? Would you no. say those are the two best teams in Europe? Yeah, I don't think that's overstating it at all. I think because as they have been on the ascension, so many others that we that we look at or look to especially you know that juggernaut that was Real Madrid, have gone the opposite way. And I don't think that that has changed over the course of this summer in terms of the transfer market. So I, I definitely think that those are the teams to beat. It doesn't mean that they can't be beaten, uh, and it doesn't mean that it would be the craziest thing in the world if they were beaten. But I still think that I think Liverpool is, be- is better, either from a, from a talent standpoint or, or more from an experiential type of standpoint with what they have done. And I think Man City is just, I mean, a juggernaut. No, I agree. Um, I think uh, those two start out as the two favorites. I thought the, f- the four best teams in Europe last season were Liverpool, Manchester City, uh, Barcelona, and Juventus. Obviously, that didn't end up being the final four. Tottenham and Ajax kind of crashed the party. But uh, as we start out the season, I'm still looking at those four as, as the four favorites. Uh, so you want to go through? All right, let's uh, do it. All right, you ready? Yeah, yeah. Group A, because I did not memorize it. I'm going to read it. Um, group A, coming at you. PSG, Real Madrid, Bruges and Galatasaray. Yeah, if I'm Ethan Horvath, I tell the manager, I'll take the Galatasaray games. Minya Lake and have the PSG and Real Madrid games. But no, I mean, obviously, PSG and Real Madrid should go through. Okay. Uh, Galatasaray just signed Radamel Falcão, so they're excited about that. Did you but, see the scenes when he, oh, uh, yeah. or, on his arrival? My God. I mean, look, it's Falcão, right? But uh, come on, guys. Uh, so PSG and Real Madrid go through. Uh, I'm going to lean uh, Real Madrid to win the group for this reason. Match day one, PSG host Real Madrid, and it looks like PSG will be definitely without Neymar, who's suspended because of his antics after they got eliminated by United last season, and also Mbappe and Cavani due to injury. So it might be Mauro Icardi leading the line in that game. Uh, but so uh, Real Madrid go in there and get a result in that game. That would set them up nicely to top the group because then they wouldn't play again until match day five in Spain, and presumably those two are going to clean up against everybody else. So, okay. uh, so I'm going to go Real Madrid to top the group. Top PSG group, go through as well. yeah. I think that's a, 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 a prudent type of uh, prediction from your part. Yeah. Uh, group B, and I don't, I, and I agree with you too. So I'll, if, if there's something I disagree with you, I will, yeah. I will tell you. Believe me. Okay, Group B, Bayern Munich. They're a little team from uh, Germany, right? Spurs, uh, Olympiakos, the Greeks, and Red Star Belgrade. Bayern and Tottenham definitely go through. Okay, uh, and I actually slightly lean Tottenham to win the group. Uh, really? I think having... you don't think they've had their moment and and. This is a regression. Uh, no, you know, I, I keep what they say regression to the mean. I like keep that? thinking about that Bayern tie against Liverpool in the round of 16 last season. When I don't think Tottenham were as good as Liverpool, but there's some similarities in terms of the pace and energy they're going to play with, and I think Bayern uh, struggle with that. And so I, I think Tottenham uh, will get uh, good results in those head-to-head games between the two, and I think that'll set them up to top the group. But it could go either way. It's very close between those two, and they're the two that definitely go through here. Okay. I agree with you, too. But you said Tottenham first. Tottenham first, Bayern second. I, I will flip those. I flip those. So I have Bayern Munich coming out on top. Uh, group C. <laughs> Look at this. This this is just a uh, chill. One last thing, by the way. Uh, <laughs> those games, Bayern, Tottenham, you have probably the two best center forwards in the world going head-to-head in Kane and Lewandowski, so that'll be fun. And well, no, because Kane of... will be hurt. Okay, so all right. Uh, group C, which is uh, it's not, it shouldn't even be called a group. Uh, it's just a joke. Man City, Shakhtar Donetsk, uh, Zagreb, Dino Zagreb, and Atalanta from Italy. City might be getting favorable draws, but at least they're getting hit hard on the financial fair play deal. UEFA's really. <laughs> 
Um, uh, no, yeah, another favorable draw for City. They topped this group. Zagreb right, finished so who's fourth. Finishing third, or, or second? Who's uh, it's going to be a battle between Shakhtar, my, my legion of Brazilians there, against Atalanta. And I go Atalanta. I think they're actually a frisky team frisky. in the competition this season. They finished third in Serie A. Last year, they have a very good coach in Gasparini. A lot of good attacking talent in Zapata and Muriel and Papu Gomez and Ilicic. So Atalanta are a potential sleeper here. I think they finished second in the group. They go through, and they could be a tough out for somebody in the round of 16. I like that team. All right. I like Atalanta too, but I'm going to disagree and say that Shakhtar is going to be uh, second. Okay. Um, Group D, Juventus, Atletico Madrid, Bayer Leverkusen, and uh, Lokomotiv Moscow. Uh, the Juve Atletico games will be two of the games of the group stage. They've already met in the preseason, uh, and obviously that's going to be Ronaldo against Jerome Felix. Uh, and by the way, Jerome Felix got the better of that matchup in the preseason. He scored two goals. And by the way, I, I say he scored two goals. There was one where he had this beautiful volley and then nicked off Thomas Lamar and some places credited Lamar with the goal. That drove me freaking crazy. That's a Jerome Felix goal any day of the week. Oh, spoken uh, like a true stats guy. Yes. Uh, in any event, uh, this, this Jerome Felix is just... You know the the most amazing thing I've seen in a long time, and so that those games are going to be so much fun. Atletico, we'll talk well, more how about long? it. Because you said the, the exact same thing, and I can probably roll back the, the the tape. We don't use tape, but I can roll back the uh, recording when you said that about Mbappe. So, is this the next Mbappe? Is this yeah, what? I would say Mbappe, Sancho, and. Jean Felix are, as young players go, a, a cut above. And you're right, M- Mbappe. Sancho? Yeah, yeah, I love Jane Sancho. James Sancho? And, and Mbappe. Playoffs? Mbappe is in a different class. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a top three or four best player in the world. So I don't even put him in the sort of young player discussion anymore. Uh, Juve, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've said the same thing about PSG in recent years, and it applies to Juve now. It's interesting when clubs that we all think are obsessed with winning the Champions League hire a manager without a Champions League winning pedigree. PSG have done that a lot with Lauren Blanc and Unai Emery and Thomas Tuchel. And now Juventus do it with Maritza Sarri, who's, who's a, a good coach, a good tactician. But, you know, it's interesting for a club that's all about winning the Champions League, you bring in a guy that doesn't have that great sort of trophy-winning pedigree. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, but, I mean, that squad is loaded. Uh, you saw, I mean, involved in an incredible game this past weekend against Napoli. Um, so, right, yeah. so you got to make a pick, first uh, or second. Who's finishing first I'm, or second? I'm on this crazy Atletico bandwagon right now. I, lo- I love everything they did this summer. I love the way that team is playing. So I'm actually going to lean Atletico to win the group. Juve to okay. finish second. Would, it, would you call me completely crazy, as you have done before, if I, if I said that Bayer Leverkusen finishes second and that Atletico Madrid finishes third? It's not out of the realm of possibility. Realm of no, possibility? no. Leverkusen are, uh, I, I was going to mention, they're a frisky third team there in that group. Um, I don't know how they're well, going to be spoilers. I don't know you how well they're, they're going de- to well gonna defend uh, against yeah. those two. That's my one question with Peter Bosch as a manager, but they've they certainly got the, the Havertz and Bailey and Volan yeah. and Bellarabi. They've certainly got the talent going forward to cause problems for anybody. So, yeah, so they, they'll make things interesting. They, they won't just lay down for those teams, but I, w- I would go Atletico. Okay, well, I'm just going to go Bayer Leverkusen to pip. Uh, Atletico Madrid for that second spot wow. and Juventus finished first. So you're not yeah. buying this whole Atletico I'm, I'm not hype. buying it. I mean, I know you're you know, in love with them over there. Uh, okay, Group E, Liverpool. I think they're from England. Uh, Napoli, Red Bull Salzburg, and Genk. Important note, the last time Liverpool and Napoli played in a Champions League match at Anfield, I was in attendance uh, alongside the likes of Keith Costigan and Zach Kenworthy and a couple other people that aren't uh, famous, so they're not worth mentioning their mentioned. names. Okay, it. And it was match day six last season. Napoli only needed a draw to advance. Liverpool needed a win. That game was 1-0 Liverpool in the 90th minute, and Milik was 
face-to-face with Alisson, should have scored. Alisson made a great save. That ball goes in. Liverpool are out of the Champions League in the group stage. Instead, they go through and they go on to win the whole thing. And I, I was there to witness that incredible moment. My man Alisson coming through, the best goalkeeper in the world. So th- those Liverpool-Napoli go through, those are going to be really fun games between those two. Napoli, uh, we talked about them last week adding Irving Lozano. He, he comes on in his debut, scores so against good. Juventus. They're down 3-0. They come back to make it 3-3. Second week in a row, they're involved in a 4-3 game. This time they lost. The previous week they had beaten Fiorentina. So th- they're just going to be a really fun team. Looking forward to those games against Liverpool. Uh, Salzburg. A uh, big point of interest there in this country. They are managed by Jesse Marsh, uh, who's off to a, a great start to life yep. there. And and they're a club I'm just fascinated by in general. They're one of those underrated clubs in Europe. They've been a fixture in the Europa League uh, last seven, eight years. They got to the semis a couple of years ago. Uh, we'll see what they can do in the Champions League. They've had some really good players pass through, their, through the years, including Sadio Mane and Nabi Keita, two that they're going to face now in this group stage with Liverpool. And then Genk are just one of those fun, like, imagine if they had held on to all their players' teams. They have a fabled youth system. They've produced guys like De Bruyne and Courtois, uh, Diva Origi, who they're going to face in this group, uh, Benteke. They've also had guys like Koulibaly and Milinkovic-Savic and Leon Bailey play there all in the last like 10 years or so. So you'll see a lot of articles about that, like, oh, look at what could have been for Genk. But none of those guys are there now, so they finish fourth in this group for sure. And so you have Liverpool and then Napoli. Uh, Liverpool and Napoli. I have Red Bull Salzburg being the Ajax of the 2019-20 Champions League and finishing second. Okay, uh, Group F, Barcelona, Borussia Dortmund, Inter Milan, and Slavia Prague. Hot take. I think Slavia Prague finished fourth in this group. Um, I think they do too. Yes. I do think Barcelona win it. I don't read that much into their early season issues. Messi hasn't played yet. So, you know, all their issues now are nothing that a couple of Messi hat tricks can't fix. Suarez has been out as well. Uh, They've they've had this Neymar thing clouding the the start of their season now that that's done. And they know what the team's going to be. As we mentioned, if if they can get the Messi-Suarez-Griezmann mix right, they're going to be, they're loaded. They're one of the favorites to win the competition. And Frankie de Jong, I think, will settle in the midfield just fine. So I think they definitely top this group. Slavia Prague finished fourth. So it becomes a battle for second between Dortmund and Inter. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'd say about Inter, and our producer Alex Dowd can speak to this, uh, Antonio Conti has never gotten that sort of uh, Europe domestic balance right. Uh, he's very good at winning league titles. He's never really done anything that special in Europe. So I love everything that Inter have done this summer. They're going to be, we're going to talk about, they're going to be one of my winners of this summer in the transfer market. Uh, and I, I I'm increasingly think they could actually challenge Juve domestically. But in, in this group, I actually slightly lean Dortmund to go through as a second team. But it's close. I could go either way on that. What, what do you think? Uh, no, I would I would only go Borussia Dortmund's way. So I would not. I'm not leaning. You, you don't even think it's. I'm close. not even leaning. I'm full full falling down in the direction of Borussia Dortmund. Wow, there you go. And oh, they're so good. Yeah, they got your 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 best player in the world, Jaden Sancho, right? I mean, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, I think both of us have Barcelona finishing first, and yes, Dortmund. But you're leaning. I'm falling. <laughs> okay, uh, Group G, Zenit. St. Petersburg, uh, Benfica, Lyon, and RB Leipzig. Yeah, my man Malcolm is at Zenit now, so I'll be keeping an eye on that team. This group contains my Ajax of this season, which is Leipzig. Uh, I am all in on Leipzig this season. I think they could win the Bundesliga, and they could be a very frisky team in the Champions League. You know, we've, we've, we've discussed it. Nagelsmann there, holding on to Timo Werner. I think all the pieces are in place, bringing guys like Nkunku and you know, Yusuf Poulsen and Forsberg. Once they get Tyler Adams back, he'll slot into that midfield somewhere. So love everything that team is doing. Uh, they're off to a flying start of the Bundesliga, and I think they're really motivated. You know, Leipzig are a club that has 
visions of world domination yep. here. And so they kind of have to start doing something in Europe uh, and get that part of the equation right. Uh, so I think this is the season. I think they, they go through. I think they win this group. And I would actually pick Lyon uh, to finish second and go through as well. Uh, it's funny. I, I've been listening to uh, L'Equipe, which is a French publication. They do this digital show where it's all their writers. They sit around and, and talk about French football for an hour and they post it on YouTube. And I, I watch it now every day because I, just to practice my French. And they're like convinced that Lyon are going to challenge PSG for the Ligue 1 title this year. There's all this Lyon buzz in France. I don't totally see it to that degree, but I do see them coming out of this group. So I think Lyon and Leipzig advance. Lyon, by the way, managed by a Brazilian, Silvino, and then their sporting director is a Brazilian, Juninho, who's the best free kick taker I've ever seen in my life. He was a legendary player at Lyon. He's now the sporting director there. So definitely a team I have an eye on for that reason. So Le- uh, Leipzig first, Lyon second. That's how I see that group shaking out. All right. I have Leipzig first and Zenit second. Wow. Bam. Yep. Okay. There you go. So the Lyon uh, train stops there, right in its tracks, before he even gets out of the station for me if, there. If Zanet go through, shout out to my, my buddy outside the Hermitage with the phone charger. <laughs> That's uh, right. He was a big uh, fan. Remember yes, that? he'll be excited. <laughs> Good callback, buddy. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. And the final group, Group H, Chelsea. And if Wikipedia is to believe, it is a club founded in 1905 in England that evidently plays in the Premier League and found its way to the Champions League. Ajax, uh, Valencia, and Lille. I don't see Lille doing much here. They sold their two best players in Pepe and Rafael Leon. Uh, with apologies to Timothy Weah, who's there now, and hopefully he does well, but I don't think he can pick up the slack. So I think it's a three-way battle for, for two spots there. Um, Ajax, it was not a Monaco-like fire sale. They lost, obviously, De Jong and De Litt, uh, but they held on to Van de Beek, Nadis, Ziyech, a lot of the, you know, Tadic, a lot of the, the key figures from that run. So it's still a, a good team. They signed Quincy Proms, uh, Edson Alvarez, Mexican. So they have Sergino Des, the young American that we're going to talk about a little bit. So I I think they're they're still a a capable team. It's hard to envision them recreating that same magic. But And Chelsea, as we've seen, are just going to be crazy and consistent this season. There's talent there. There's good young talent. Uh, I like Lampard. I think they're building things for the future that's going to bear fruit in a couple of years. But this is just going to be a frustrating season. Alex Dad will be bald by the time this season <laughs> is over. Um, that being said, I would slightly lean Chelsea and Ajax to advance uh, out of the group. In what order there, Moss? I'll go Chelsea first, Ajax second. Chelsea first, Ajax. Really? Yeah, you would go the other way around on that? I'm not even sure Chelsea's coming out. I mean, I'm, I'm going to make this call right here in this second, all right? My, my, my gears are spinning right now. Okay, hold on a second. Yeah, I'm going to say Ajax and Valencia. Yes, Ajax wow. and Valencia. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I can go either way. Chelsea, by the way, they have the, the American. What's his name? Um, Dempsey. Uh, no? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we'll see how... Chelsea fares in this uh, in this tournament with Mr. Pulisic uh, under under tremendous amount of press, pressure given the uh, the money that is involved with him. All right, so all right, so that's uh, that's all of them. We'll see how our picks are. I'm sure you will let us know, especially the ones that were wrong. Uh, and if you are betting, it's a good bet uh, if you're if you're siding with Mossy just to protect your money out there. But you never know. You never know what uh, what's going to happen. Uh, anything else, Mossy, on the uh, UCL draw? Uh, no, that is it. I would just say uh, Virgil van Dijk uh, won the UEFA Player of the Season, and he's now been nominated for the FIFA Award as well with Messi and Ronaldo. Uh, be interesting to see if he wins that. It'd be the second year in a row that somebody other than Messi and Ronaldo wins it, obviously Modric last season. So we're sort of starting to move away from that era of those two guys dominating. Although I, I don't know if you saw the ceremony. It was nice them sitting next to each other oh, and kind of cool. reflecting on their rivalry and their relationship. So 
Uh, that was good to see. Uh, final uh, question. Who's winning the whole thing? Uh, the Champions League? Yeah. I, oof, I'm going to go Manchester City. They finally break through this oh year. My God, we finally come in accord here. This oh, is, you're... I, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I agree. Finally. This uh, is the moment. Um, it doesn't mean that Liverpool's winning the league, by the way. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, social media platforms. You send them through and questions, comments, concerns, and then we pick three of them and read them off as we are about to do right now, Mossy. First up, at 5280Ruckus. Uh, does MLS give any more or less help to the U.S. men's national team than the Premier League gives England or La Liga gives Spain? I would say more uh, by well, I don't know if it's by design, just by the the history that we have. And I think the recognition and the need, if you will, of the national team doing well. When the national team uh, a few years ago had that epic failure of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, it didn't just impact the national team. It impacted soccer and the conscience of soccer uh, and, and men's soccer. And it impacted Major League Soccer. It's not a good thing. When the national team does well, it is good for Major League Soccer. Now, there are limits as to how far something can go. Greg Berhalter's job is not to help Major League Soccer. All right, Greg Berhalter's job is to put the best possible team on the field that he can and go and win games and hopefully win a World Cup. But that's a little simplistic because Greg Berhalter understands, as all national team coaches understand, that the ability to have a relationship and a working relationship with a league that is going to give you lots of your talent, either it's if, if, if it's starting talent or depth, that it behooves you to have a good relationship and to foster one from the beginning. And whether it's him or anybody else, making sure that you're on the phone. And by the way, it's not just him. It's also the Ernie Stewarts and then whoever is put in this position that is open right now of being the technical director of the national team. They need to foster those relationships. And yes, I think there is a much more supportive uh, connection and working relationship than exists exists uh, elsewhere. I mean, we've even, even seen it here with the fact that Josie Altador and Michael Bradley have not been called into the latest national team, uh, and Omar Gonzalez, for that matter, who all play on Toronto, who are all fighting for a playoff spot. And so there is a give and take. I would love nothing more if I was a national team coach to just be able to call up, or not even call up, just say, this is my team. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not having any calls. I'm not having any uh, back and forth. That's not a quid pro quo or anything like that with, with teams. But that's not how the world works. And by the way, that's not how national teams work. Because those clubs, they have power. And those leagues, when it comes to Major League Soccer, they have power. And having a good, positive, healthy working relationship is the best way to get things done, as opposed to... To, uh, just a scorched earth type of approach. Now, I'm not saying that other other leagues and other national teams don't have a working relationship and even one that is that is healthy. But I think the general belief that we have that having a good national team is ultimately going to help the sport, which is going to help the league. And for the most part, you're getting the t- the players from this league. I think that that is reflected in the way that we uh, that we go about. This whole topic of uh, how much should a domestic league try to help the national team has been uh, in China. It's been a big conversation the last few years. And the latest development there is a whole bunch of these foreign players in the Chinese league are now going to go play for Chinese national team. That's going to be a Mossy Makes a Case sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to delve into that whole issue. So there's a, there's a little tease. And let me say one more thing. When I say that the national team you know, in a vacuum 
is not responsible for helping Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer is also not responsible for helping the national team. It's fine if it happens, but they both have overarching types of things that they, uh, that they have to do. And by the way, this relationship that has been positive and healthy through the years can go south. And it can be problematic, especially if I'm the national team coach and I'm looking at what Major League Soccer has become over the last few years in terms of the opportunities for U.S. men's national team eligible players to play. If I'm looking at it and saying, hey, listen, why am I giving you the benefit of the doubt? Why am I being benevolent? Why am I bending over backwards and helping you in this instance for a Toronto FC or for anybody else when there's fewer and fewer opportunities for players that I could potentially call in to play in this league. That's going to be something they're going to have to deal with because it's all nice to be kumbaya when you are getting something in return. But when that stops happening and it's a one-way street, you'd be amazed to see how the relationship and the reaction to you changes very, very quickly. All right, Mossy, what's next? At Emory Soccer 18, what distinguishes Pulisic's game from Donovan's? I love the kid, but don't see his upside that far greater than Landon's peak. They are very different types of players. Uh, when I think of Landon Donovan, I think of him as a slasher. Landon Donovan was not good in tight spaces. Landon Donovan was not good dribbling through multiple players in a confined space. Out, outstretched out, countering into space, Landon Donovan was as good and as lethal as anybody that we've ever seen. Uh, I think Christian Pulisic is much better. I think he has. I think ultimately he has better skill with his feet. Okay, he is so technically. I think he is a better player with the ball at his feet, which enables him to get out of uh, problems. I think Landon is much more efficient in the way that he plays, and I think Landon so far. And look, we're we're dealing with Landon at the end and post career right now, so we have this body of work. But this is so far. Doesn't mean that that Christian Pulisic can't equal the value that Landon Donovan has, but he's going to do it in a very, very different uh, a very different way. Landon was not as clean and is not as clean when it comes to the way that Christian Pulisic plays. You look at Christian Pulisic, and this is a guy that, you know, the first touch is always there. The knowledge and the recognition positionally is always there. Landon, in a strange way, was much cruder of a player. So, and once again, it's do you want this type of player or do you want this type of player? In different situations in the game, you want that type of player. And so it's not to say that Landon is better or Landon is worse, but I do see them very different. And that you don't see a upside in Christian Pulisic at this point, um, I would, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing that you that you don't see it. I just, I'm just saying I still see incredible potential instead of a growth potential for a Christian Pulisic. Does it, but he's got to grow a lot in order to get to Landon Donovan's level of being able to impact a game on a consistent basis. Let me ask you this. People base their opinions a lot on European club pedigree, and they see more and more young Americans signing with big European clubs, so it makes them think that these players are more talented than the generations that came before them. But every guy I talk to from your generation always brings up that, you know, when we played, there was still this bias against American players. There was a ceiling as to how 
big a club you could play for in Europe. And the guys now are reaping the rewards from like the doors that we knocked down. And I, it's funny, you brought him up earlier. I wanted to bring him up in this discussion. Uh, every guy from your generation tells me that if Tab Ramos had come along today, that he'd be playing for one of these big European clubs yeah. and would be attracting a Pulisic-like transfer fee. Are, are you on that page? 100%. Absolutely. But look, I, I don't need thanks or recognition because we all do it on other people's shoulders. Even back in the day when I was coming up, I was doing it on previous uh, players' sh uh, shoulders and people, men and women, on and off the field that will never, ever get the recognition. So I, I don't need this generation to look back and, and, and thank us for, for anything. But the advantages that this generation has when it comes to the culture that they live in, the infrastructure that they are able to inhabit, the resources that they have, the contracts that they sign, all that kind of stuff. It is night and day what they are able to do. And I do think that the appreciation and, you know, I guess the, the value and the incredible impact that many players had coming from such a very different time and culture cannot be under underestimated uh you know look i i grew up in the suburbs of detroit in the 1970s and it's not that we didn't have soccer but it was a wasteland when it came to soccer and yet i was able to play in a world cup you can't have it both ways you can't say you, you live in a culture that has never had soccer and, and, and has no history. And then when somebody actually goes and plays at the highest level, how is that possible that that happened? I didn't have the advantages that they have. Now, the other thing that I also didn't have was the amount of people playing. But I can counter that with saying, yeah, it was the, the best of the best. It was elite in terms of your ability to make uh, to make an impact, even when MLS started with the with the, the fewer teams, that meant that there were fewer opportunities to be a professional soccer player in the United States than there are now. Now I know there's a lot more people playing right now, but this is progress. This is evolution. This is all this is all good stuff. But and I also maintain that if you're a good player, it doesn't matter what area you play play in. If Pele came about today he would find a way to be Pele in 2019 with what exists today. And if Messi was born 30, 40 years ago, before he was born, he would still be one of the great players. And Donovan's career is interesting because he had a great performance at the Under-17 World Cup in 1999 and signed with Leverkusen shortly thereafter as a 17-year-old. Leverkusen were a very good club. They got to the 2002 Champions League final. And if Donovan had been wired more like Pulisic in terms of really craving that European success and had gone there, he might have had this Pulisic sort of trajectory done well there, then parlayed that into like a big transfer to a mega club. And a lot of the things that Pulisic is doing now and is sort of the first American to do it, it perhaps could have been Donovan, but he chose a different path, MLS. And so, you know, you wonder how that affects the perception about their careers and who's better. And Oh, absolutely. The fact that Landon didn't stick in Europe is something that sticks in the craw of a lot of people and they will point to it and i think it is incredibly wrong and ultimately unfair to use that as your reason why you don't think that he is in the argument for the best american soccer player uh in history so i just he he made a choice and for that choice he has been called soft 
for that choice, he has been accused of not having the desire uh, or the character or the personality to fulfill that potential that we that we all saw. And I think that's a crock. I think that's I think that's I, I just think that that's that's wrong. And you can be the best American soccer player in history and never play overseas. And I know a lot of people disagree, but that's that you know that's the way that I look at him, and that's the way that I look at at anybody. So whether it's Christian Pulisic, if Christian Pulisic becomes the best American soccer player ever to play the game, it's not because he played at Dortmund and Chelsea. It's because of ultimately what he has done on the field and does from a consistent basis from start to finish. All right. We'll end with the obligatory fun one. Um, <laughs> uh, at A. Verna Law, what kind of guitar are you playing these days? Oh, uh, thank you, Verna Law. Uh, so I, from an acoustic perspective, I've always played guilds. Uh, I just find them uh, from a sound-wise wa- sound and comfort uh, wise, they just they fit, and if you play guitar, you understand that something's just fit. Doesn't necessarily have to do with money or or, or prestige or anything like that. So, guild guitars, when it comes to an acoustic perspective, uh, when it comes to electric, uh, I've always played Les Pauls. You know, I have Telecasters and Stratocasters and all that kind of stuff, but I don't. I never used whammy bars, and so a Les Paul into a Marshall stack, and I'm and, and I'm good. I know I'm speaking gibberish right now to you, uh, to you, Mossy, but there are guitar people out there right now. I mean, so between a, a Les Paul and let's say a Telecaster or a Stratocaster, it's kind of like the, the Messi-Ronaldo type of debate in that they're both wonderful and there are sides that you fall on and these two camps of these incredibly iconic type of guitars. And people will say, this one's better because of the way that it looks or the way that it sounds. And then the other one will argue on the other side, and this one's so much better. And so when you see somebody over here like Slash playing a Gibson Les Paul, and you see somebody over here like Bruce Springsteen playing a Telecaster or something over here, two iconic type of performers and guitar players out there who have very, very different ideas of what they want. And by the way, guitarists play all sorts of them. But if, if I had to say, those are the two uh, thing, uh, the two guitars. Les Paul for electric and Guilds for uh, acoustics. Who, in your opinion, is the greatest guitar player of all time? Warren Martini, the guitarist for Rat. Obviously, you know uh, Warren Martini, right? Yeah, I, look, the, it's once again, it, I can no more tell you what your best soccer player is, league is, uh, then I can tell you what your best wine is or food is or best looking person is. It's all subjective. And so for me, that, that's who it is. I, I, but, but I'll also be honest with you. I don't like guitar solos. I think they are overindulgent and oftentimes they take away from the song for me. So there are certain ones that are, that are wonderful, but for the most part, I can do without guitar so solos. So Eddie Van Halen it didn't do much for you, those Van Halen concerts? No, where he would the have, guitar have solos the did nothing him. for me from Eddie Van Halen's <laughs> perspective, other than the pageantry and the whole spectacle of right. it. But as far as the guitar solo, I, I cared much more about the song. And by the way, that's not, a, that's not a knock on Eddie Van Halen, because if anybody knew about songwriting and the importance of the guitar within the actual context of the song, it was Eddie Van, it was Eddie Van Halen. So yes, he could do the solos and mesmerize all the guitar people out there and the guitar geeks out there that want to salivate over a guy doing that. But I went and got a beer and then came back <laughs> for the actual song. So. <laughs> 
All right, that is it. All right. Uh, once again, use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, social media platforms and send them through, and we will, once again, pick two or three of them each week. Uh, most of them have to do with soccer. Some of them have to do with guitars. And we will read them on air as we just did uh, like that. Ask Alexi and use that on the uh, social media platforms. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our Back Three when we look at some big stories and games and moments. Masi, what is in our Back Three this week? All right, the U.S. men's national team has uh, a game coming up against arch-rival Mexico this Friday at MetLife Stadium. You will be there covering it for FS1, correct? I uh, will. Yeah, I'll be there for both games. Uh, well, yeah, not there, I, but I'll be there, and then I'm going to St. St. Louis. Louis. Yeah, well, I think we'll touch on Uruguay next week. Yeah. Uh, I think Alex Dowd wants us to really zero in on this Mexico game. Well, you know, what's not to love? U.S.-Mexico. Enough said, right? I mean, uh, it's 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 a classic. I, I think that it's the greatest rivalry in international soccer. Come at me. Go ahead. Bring, bring it on. I don't care. Uh, and not just because I've played in it, but I've reported on it and I've been in it. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the constant back and forth of the gap, uh, or if there is a gap between us and Mexico, and we've uh, there's no more gap, and we've gone ahead, and they've gone ahead, and back and forth. It's just it's wonderful. If you ever get a chance, whether it's a friendly like it is this week, uh, or during the hex, or in a tournament, or if there is ever in the future another time where we meet up with Mexico and, and spank them again, dos a zero. Get, if you get a chance to do it, do it. It's it's something you will never forget. And if you get to go down to Mexico City or if you get to go to a, uh, one of the qualifiers here in the U.S., again, it is something you will never forget. You don't see a contradiction in calling this the best rivalry in international soccer and your controversial comments during the 2018 World Cup that you were, in fact, rooting for Mexico to do well. No, I don't. I mean, if the U.S. is playing Mexico, I, I, I want to crush Mexico, all right? If the U.S. is out of the World Cup and Mexico is playing... I'm okay because, Mossy, I'm enlightened, okay? <laughs> Unlike a lot of people out there, you know, that just have this caveman or cavewoman Neanderthal type of existence out there, I am able to look and see the beauty that is Mexico, even though they are my biggest rival, even though when the U.S. is playing them, I want nothing more than to crush them, as is the case uh, coming up uh, in, in a few days here. So whether it's whether it's playing against them in a friendly or playing against them in a World Cup, yes, I want to beat them. But if I, but if they're not playing, it's okay, okay? Because I am a big enough person to be able to say, go ahead, Mexico. I want you to do well. I know Landon Donovan, who we just talked about, got a little touchy this summer when ahead of that Gold Cup final. There were a couple people on Twitter, so who are you rooting for in this oh, one, Landon? Yeah. <laughs> and he did not appreciate it. Let's just say there was some angry responses back uh, yeah, to look, those. If, uh, if, but, if I get touchy every single time somebody has something mean to say of <laughs> me, it's going to be a long, uh, long day, but, so uh, get in line. As far as youthful roster from Greg Berhalter, some guys I'm really excited to watch, like Des and yep. Paul McCall, Sargent, who, as we mentioned, scored a great goal this weekend for Bremen against Augsburg. Your thoughts on the roster and any players that you have an eye on? Yeah, I mean, so, it was interesting because I was thinking about this, this, these couple of games, and you know this this ongoing, you know, battle for hearts and minds that Greg Berhalter and this team uh, has has undertaken. And it's it we've talked about this before, where I think for the most part people are still sitting around with their arms crossed, waiting for this team to provide them with either a moment or a or a. Uh, or, or moments to justify their believing again and having hope that this team can uh, can do something. A lot of that is based around this core of young talent that is that is coming through. And so when I look at 
you know, these players like Zach Steffen, Serginho Dest, Miles Robinson getting called in, Weston McKinney, Paxton Palma called, Josh Sargent, and obviously Christian Pulisic, and with players like Tyler Adams uh, and Timothy Weah, who are not in this camp but are waiting in the wings, it, it fills me with a sense of curiosity and a sense of cautious optimism. But it's easy to say, play the kids, right? But when you play the kids and you get crushed, then you're the coach that everybody says, you don't know what you're doing, you're naive, you're unrealistic, you're simply out of your depth, all of those different things. But you don't know if those kids are all right until you play them. And having said that, you know, I think back to a couple of years ago when we were all up in arms because after the U.S. failed to qualify in what was October of 2017, I think that's right, uh, then we waited a, over a year to name a head coach. And I know within there, there was a change of leadership in the president of U.S. soccer. But the consternation, and I think rightfully so, of not having a coach in in that year and losing that what ended up being 14 months or so, I would love if Greg Berhalter had had that opportunity because it is coming and it is coming fast, people. And for the players right now, your time to make an impact, your time to grab a hold of the opportunity is fading very, very quickly. It's, it's interesting because this fall, in a month, we have Nations League. All right. And by the way, that helps determine if you're one of the six teams that qualify for the hex. Yes, the same hex that starts in a year from now, that same hex that was the undoing of this national team in 2017. So games that matter, games that mean something are going to are going to be upon us. And Greg Berhalter has to figure out what this team is going to be. He doesn't have time to experiment. He doesn't have time uh, to tinker with this lineup. If you are a young player, you got to say, I am here. I'm taking this opportunity. I deserve to be here. Not because I'm young, not because I'm a fresh face, but because when, when all is said and done, I can do the job. And the job, first and foremost right now, is to qualify for the World Cup. And then the job is to do well in the World Cup. And Greg Berhalter isn't taking players because they're young, isn't taking players because they're new. He's taking players that he is going to have to figure out can do the job, but he's going to have to figure out quickly. So this whole experimental type of moment that we have been living in under Gray Burhalter, it's going to come to an end and it's going to come to an end real soon. And then it's going to matter. And so ultimately, all Greg Berhalter is going to care about is can you get that job done? And so all of these young players, it's all fine and well. But if we're left saying, yeah, that's potentially going to be a good player. I like what I saw. There were a couple little moments. Okay, we don't have, we don't have time. Greg Berhalter is not going to have time to let that come to fruition in games that don't matter. And if you want to play him in games that matter, fine. But I'll be really interested to see ultimately what Greg Berhalter does with players like Omar Gonzalez, players like Josie Altidore, players like Michael Bradley. And when it really comes down to it, and it's coming, uh, it's coming soon, what that 11 looks like and how many of these young players that get everybody revved up and excited with are actually the ones that he's going to trust to get the job done. Or is it going to be, you know what, I, I can't afford to mess around. I can't afford to risk not qualifying for the World Cup again. And so I'm going to go back to the people, even though they failed four years ago, I'm going to go back to the people that understand what it is to go through a qualifying process. Uh, and I'm going to rely on the experience and the veteran type of leadership out there. I don't think that Greg Berhalter is going to do that. And it's probably going to be a mix of both. But I'll just be really interested to see how that 
side of the mix that is the young players that have come to the, to the fore now are used. And there's a lot of them that we're going to see in these next couple of games. The only thing I'll say about Burhalter and the result of this game coming up, this is not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning. There's still a fair amount of people in this country that think Tata Martino should have been the U.S. coach, and the only reason he's not is because he doesn't speak English that well, and they think that's a bogus reason to disqualify a candidate. And the fact that Mexico swooped in and got him added even more scrutiny to that decision. He's already lost a Gold Cup final to him. He loses this game. He's not 0-2 against Tata. I could see that becoming a thing. Hey, why didn't we hire this guy? Instead, we went with this guy over here. So that, that's just, you know, it's a friendly. Normally, you wouldn't get the, sure. that bent out of shape about the result. But to me, that's just like an extra little layer of it that's, that's hanging over this. Yeah, I mean, so we lose the Gold Cup final to Mexico, which can happen. It's happened in the past, and, and it happened again this summer. And then you follow it up with another game, albeit a friendly, against, uh, against Mexico. And I see how the optics of that would not look good. But I don't think uh, if uh, Tata is obviously a much sexier and bigger name. But it doesn't mean that he was right for the job over a Greg Berhalter. And we won't know ultimately until all of this, uh, all this plays out. I, I do remain cautiously optimistic, and I do have, a, a gener in general, a good feeling about what Greg Berhalter is doing. But it, it's ultimately going to come down to the results. And those moments where you need results uh, are going to come very, very quickly. What else, Mossy? Moving on to the U.S. women's national team. I know you were just in Philadelphia covering the victory tour. And what do you make of this Carly Lloyd becoming an NFL <laughs> kicker business? Yeah, so we spoke to Carly after the game in Philadelphia uh, last week. And she had that that wry type of uh, grin and smile when we talked about it. And she didn't let off any let let us into anything else out there from a media perspective that isn't already out there. She went to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles training. She was videoed making a 55-yard field goal. All hell breaks loose. It's on every talk. I mean, I, I landed at Philadelphia and driving into the hotel on regular sports radio. They were talking. Uh, they were talking about this. So, Carly Lloyd is a a American and just a, in general a soccer legend. And any soccer player, including myself, at some point when you're growing up, when you're even playing, you will find yourself uh, on a football field, an American football field, and you will find yourself turning heads by hitting long field goals. It happens to everybody at a certain point, and then. Somebody on the side that you either know or you don't says, hey, uh, you should kick in the NFL. But all soccer players know that just because <laughs> you can kick a ball doesn't mean that you are a place kicker. And by the way, Carly Lloyd knows this, uh, knows this too. And I love what she is doing. I have so much uh, respect for uh, and, and glee in what she is doing right now because she is masterfully using the NFL. And by the way, the NFL is using her. And because Carly Lloyd stays on brand for her individually and in relative to the U.S. women's national team in what they do in terms of pushing for change, in terms of breaking down barriers, in terms of challenging convention, and ultimately in, ter in terms of empowering uh, women. And if you say that she can't do it, then uh, you're going to be accused of being sexist or chauvinistic. And then if you say if she can do it, you're going to be accused of being righteous or virtue signaling. And the other thing is, 
let's be honest, okay? Because there's, I, I heard a lot about this. It was, it's about her safety, and really concerned with her uh, getting hurt. Concerns for her safety out there are are completely disingenuous because the truth is there are so many people out there, as many people that would tune in to watch because they're just excited about having her in particular play in the NFL, as many people that would do that are also going to tune in to watch because they precisely want to see her get jacked up by a 300-pound football player. And place kicking, this is what I do know about American football, place kicking is a specialized and unique position. And in the rare instances, and I I have watched football, so don't think I don't watch it, but in the rare instances that one of those kicks is blocked, nobody expects her, and by the way, nobody expects any kicker out there to do anything. As a matter of fact, a lot of kickers don't do anything. And when they actually do get involved, it's such a rarity that it's a highlight, okay? Either because they actually make a tackle or because they're just getting run down by somebody because they wanted to get involved. So nobody is expect her to do anything but curl up into the fetal position or run to the sideline as every other field goal kicker does when the, uh, the kick uh, gets blocked. So Carly Lloyd can make a 55-yard field goal. And by the way, a lot of soccer players can. But we're not going to know if she can do it in the NFL until she gets the opportunity. And I hope she gets the opportunity. I am there for it. I want to see what this, is, what this is all about. I have never met a more competitive and intense athlete out there than Carly Lloyd. It's what makes her one of the greats. So the, the mental aspect of it, you know, that's, that's not something that's, that's guaranteed. But she's coming in with a, with a hell of a mentality, that, that chip on her shoulder. She's a Jersey girl in the, in the best possible way. So that part of it, in terms of doing something and proving people wrong, I got no problem, no problem with it. The leg strength and the two, the two steps and all that kind of stuff that she has to do, fine. It's never, it's never happened before. Uh, it wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past her to be able to do it, but we're not going to know about it until she tries. But guess what? If she tries and she fails, it's not because she is a woman, all right? It's because she just wasn't good enough. But what she is doing right now and the reason why we're talking about all of this is wonderful. It's wonderful for her. It's wonderful for the national team. And by the way, it's wonderful for the NFL. So the NFL, whatever, however this ends up playing out, the NFL should send her a nice care package and say thank you, thank you, thank you. On the topic of place kicking, believe it or not, I have a friend named Scott Norwood. Uh, you don't know, that's the name of uh, the guy who had the most famous field goal miss in NFL history, Super Bowl 25, Giants, Bills. Uh, no relation, but the guy's name, my friend, is actually Scott Norwood, believe it or not. Do people uh, ask him? Uh, yeah, it's, of course. It's <laughs> oh, that sucks. Uh, but, so we'll end on this. The transfer window in Europe has slammed shut in all the major countries. Cuso. Uh, so, yep. uh, one note, by the way, very disappointing article I saw today. The Premier League, I think, took the right step in moving their deadline up uh, before the start of the season. But evidently, they expected all the other top leagues to follow suit. And the fact that they haven't is making Premier League teams feel like they're at a competitive disadvantage. And so, so now all the talk is they're going to undo that and they're going to move their window back to where it was before. There's Apparently, there's some big meeting this week or next week. And, and, and that's it's they're going to like rubber stamp that. It's almost definite that that's going to happen. So it sounds like, folks, the Premier League uh, deadline will go back to... Being <laughs> that didn't last long, did it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is a shame because I actually think the Premier League had that 
that right. I wish the other leagues had followed suit. I think it's much better that way. But so the window slammed shut. So what were my big takeaways? Uh, absolutely fascinated by PSG's summer. They made some uncharacteristically very savvy moves, got a real bang for their buck. They added Kaylor Navas, Abdu Diallo, Ander Herrera, Idrissa Gay, Pablo Sarabia, and Mauro Icardi without spending that much money. The net spend was only like 10 or 20 million euros because they also sold some guys. So I think they've really rounded out that squad nicely. And of course, they kept Neymar. Although I do wonder... Is that a good or bad thing? I was going to say, PSG might be the club that looks back on this summer with a little bit of regret in how this Neymar thing played out because they did have a chance here to get out from underneath that deal. This might be the last summer where he has real value because if he gets injured again now, it's starting to become a real thing with him, the concern over his fitness. He's not a spring chicken anymore. He turns 28 this season. And I don't know, it could have almost been this sort of Liverpool Coutinho situation where they cash in on a big star and, and, and get a, perhaps get a couple players back from Barcelona and get a whole boatload of money they can use to sign another couple players. They could have perhaps come out of this whole thing with a better overall team. Instead, they hold on to Neymar, who we'll see. If he's motivated and stays healthy this season, now with the supporting cast around them, maybe this is the season where they make a run in the Champions League and kind of validate this whole thing. But so PSG, to me, fascinating team team here adding the likes of Navas and, and Icardi and the players they added in the midfield so they're they're uh, the winners for you one of them yeah I mean the, the Icardi thing I know I've been bullish that it made no sense for Neymar to go to Barcelona because you already have Messi Suarez and Griezmann there and I don't like having more stars than than without a place to put him in the lineup and I think that can be sort of a combustible mix and a lot of people are, are, are feeling the same way about Icardi going to a PSG team that has Neymar Mbappe and Cavani and there is an element of that. Tuchel's going to have to manage that. I mean yeah, Icardi it's like the island is a of misfit toys strong or personality there, guy that's been the top scorer in Serie A like three of the last five seasons. I'm sure he thinks he's better than Cavani in his mind and he's got that wife who you know I what, what did I call her? Uh, Yoko Ono mixed with LeVar Ball so, that, so that's going to be a, a, a interesting. I don't think it's as you know you're not dealing with stars on the level of it would have been with Neymar, Griezmann, Messi, Suarez. Icardi's a guy that they got on loan at the end of the deadline because his 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 previous team just couldn't stand the sight of him anymore. So I don't think he can show up there at PSG with as much clout to be like, well, I want to start. He'll have to accept a role as a sub super sub this season. It's it's a it's a one year rental. It's a loan with an option to buy for like 70 million euros next summer. I don't think it's going to be as combustible a mix as some people are making it seem. And, you know, it, the benefit is they added depth. And I just mentioned match they won against Real Madrid. Cavani's injured, probably out. It's not that not a bad guy to turn to and have Mario Icardi start that game. So they add Icardi, they add everybody else. Uh, so, the, I mean, the question becomes, I mean, do, do you, with them holding on to Neymar, do you buy into any notion of them being a Champions League contender this season or no? You're, you're never going to take that team seriously no, in that competition. I think they're going to be dysfunctional. I think they will <laughs> flatter to deceive, I think the term is, uh, yes. the phrase is over there for, for, for the team. Uh, I think, yeah, I, I think they will continue to attempt to do what they've what the goal has been all along which is to compete and ultimately win champions league and they won't do it you know but uh, what does neymar after what's happened become we we see this oftentimes with players where a big move it's not that he hasn't had a big move so it's a little different with a little different with him but obviously he didn't want to be there right and now he's got to find a way to walk back onto the field in the locker room and it's not that Guys are going to throw stuff at him because they recognize he's a good player. But one, you mentioned, does can he stay healthy and continue to stay healthy? Or two, is this something that lights his fire? I don't, I don't see Neymar as being motivated by these types of <laughs> things. It just doesn't. I'm, I'm not sure that how he. That's not, not how he works. That, that's not how he functions as a player. You, you know, I, I, I don't think that this 
he's got something to prove. Neymar has kind of proved everything. I'll get a look at him, by the way, a week from today at the L.A. Coliseum. I'm going to the Brazil-Peru friendly. I'll probably be wearing this jersey, in fact. Um, you think he's going to be there? Uh, no, he's in the squad. He's, well, it doesn't he's, mean he's going to be there. Well, yeah, we'll, well, we'll, we'll see if he we'll, plays. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and, and, and the other flip side of that is Barcelona. Uh, this whole Neymar business has created a little bit of a, a messy dynamic in that uh, pardon the pun, in that uh, dressing room because they were offering all these players uh, in, as, as part of the deal to go to PSG. And Messi and Suarez were apparently trying to shove those players out the door and say, yeah, we want Neymar. You guys should go. Remember, I've told you all along, Messi was the one driving this whole right. Neymar business. I don't think Barcelona ever That's why wanted that much. That's why didn't get done. Yeah. But now all those players in that dressing room are annoyed at Messi because they feel like he was trying to shove them like out the now, door. <laughs> uh, but again, I, I still think there's enough quality in that Barcelona dressing room. They'll get over it. They'll be fine. They'll be uh, a good team. I, I do want to highlight the other two Madrid teams quickly. Atletico, definitely one of my winners of the summer. And it's amazing to say that because going into it, you, you could see that they were going to lose a bunch of guys like Griezmann, uh, Rodri, uh, all these stalwarts at the back, the Godins and Juan Franz and Felipe Luis and Lucas Hernandez. And you thought, okay, this might be where, you know, uh, Simeone can't sort of reinvent this. And, and yet he has. And, and, and they brought in Jerome Felix. They brought in guys like Hector Herrera and, and, and Llorente and Trippier. And my God, they've, they've come out of this looking like stronger than ever. And they're, they're a top La Liga right now and playing beautiful football. And, and boy, I love what I've seen from that team this season. So, I mean, Simeone, give him credit. He's somehow managed to uh, come out of the summer looking okay. And then, you know, the other, the other team is worth highlighting is Real Madrid, who has spent more money than anybody, 300 million euros. And yet this supposed revolution under Zidane really hasn't happened because you look at that starting lineup and it's the same guys from last season. And they're relying on Gareth Bale to win games. A lot of the new signings are going to be on the bench, guys like Jovic and Militão and Mendy. So, uh, again, I keep saying this really awkward vibe around Zidane there and Real Madrid this season. I'm not sure what to make of them. Well, never um, have we had so many wonderful players making so much money, so angry <laughs> at their lot in life in terms of where they are playing. Jeez. Nobody's ever happy anymore. I mean, I guess it's all relative. But, a, a, club, a club that I've been very high on all summer, the business they did is Dortmund, and talking up the fact, that, oh, this is the season where they're going to get Bayern. They turned that Pulisic money into Hazard and Brand and Schultz. And then they go out and lose to Union Berlin last time out. Union. <laughs> Union. Union Berlin. Uh, Berlin. I, I mean, what, what did you make of that? Is that just sort of same old Dortmund? And, and two games in, you're already out on this whole notion that no, they're going to— No, it's gonna... the same old Union. They, they, they bring it, I should say three, three games into the Bundesliga <laughs> campaign. No, it's, it, it was—you could see it happening. It, it, this was not going to work. And yeah, I think—and once again— in the same way that in uh, in the EPL, you you mess up once or twice, and that could lose you the title. You mess up once or twice, and as soon as, especially when Bayern Munich smells blood, and now with what uh, RB Leipzig is, there's other people in those waters. It's not just Bayern Munich sw swimming around right now. So I don't think that this means that that all of a sudden, woe is me, uh, Bruce Dortmund's not gonna not gonna be good and not gonna challenge for the title right now, but. This was not something that anybody saw com uh, coming in terms of who they lost to. And a couple more teams I want to highlight. Inter Milan, I thought, had a really nice summer, not only bringing Conti as a coach, but 
Lukaku, uh, even Alexis Sanchez for, for, for a loan. Why not? Maybe he can, you know, change the scenery for him. Guys like Sensi and Barella in the midfield, Diego Godin at the back. Uh, so I think Inter are really in business this season. And then I'll end on this since they're my pick to win the Champions League this season. Manchester City had a sneaky good summer. They didn't do that much, but I, I like the two pickups they made and Rodri in that midfield. I think they've got their successor to Fernandinho there. And then João Cancelo, who I love right back, I think is going to be a big weapon flying down that right wing for them all season. So I think they're one of the winners, and, and I think this is the season for them. I think it flips. I think Liverpool win the Premier League, City win the Champions League. Ooh. Well, before we before we uh, finish up here, uh, Chicharito on the move too, right? And speaking of U.S. Mexico coming up, when you look at his resume, Chicharito's resume, it is it is pretty amazing in terms of where uh, that player has played and the types of goals and the amount of goals that he has consistently uh, scored, which makes from a, uh, a domestic standpoint in, in MLS the situation because. You think, all right, well, this is the moment when Chicharito, because he's always been talked about possibly coming back to Major League Soccer. And I, I think that they would, when I say they, whoever he ended up playing for, would make him the highest paid player in the history of the league. That's how important he is from an on-the-field perspective, but let's be honest, even more importantly from an off-the-field perspective, especially with you know the Mex Mexican-American community uh, and how much, how iconic uh, and known Chicharito is. So he continues on his adventure over in Europe and gets older and older as this is happening, which means that his value and his worth to MLS decreases year by year by year. Yeah, I, I'm not a big, big fan of his. I, I think I even I even tweeted this last season. How are we ever going to explain to future generations that Chicharito was ever a thing? Because he was. <laughs> he was very much a thing. Manchester United started a Champions League final for them. Real Madrid scored a big goal against Atletico Madrid to knock him out of the Champions League one season. And yet, you know, watching him last season, I actually watched an inordinate amount of West Ham last season because they have this Brazilian player. I love Felipe Anderson. And watching Felipe Anderson try to play one-twos with Chicharito sucked the life out of me. It is amazing how unskilled he is. He really is the, the modern-day Filippo Inzaghi, yeah, but, but, there, there, but without just, the, the, quite the same goal scoring sense. You just explained, right there, Monsi, <laughs> you just explained why he is the phenomenon that he is. You're watching teams that you could care less about, okay, <laughs> simply because there is a Brazilian on the field. Right, yeah. and there are people that will watch Chicharito simply because there is a Mexican international uh, and, as I said, an iconic one playing on that on, on that team wherever he goes, and that's what MLS is is banking on if and when they decide to sign him, whatever team that ends up being. Can you imagine Chicharito playing for LAFC or playing for the Galaxy now? Who knows what happens further on down the line, but it was a little bit of a head a head scratcher because if there ever was a moment, but you know what, he keeps getting he keeps getting opportunities because he does he does score goals and he does bring fans. But when he was in Germany, when he was in Bundesliga, he was the number one player in the Bundesliga and brought so many more people to watch the Bundesliga, which is what any league. So it's not just MLS playing this uh, playing this thing. It's any league that has him. Anything else, Mossy, out there? No, that is it. All right. So we started off uh, the pod talking about one Darlington Nagby. I'm not going to talk more about him other than to say that, you know, sometimes, uh, and I have talked about this before, sometimes we have this this insecurity and this inferiority complex when it comes to how we view uh, our soccer. And we love to kick ourselves for what we haven't done. And sometimes we also need to step back and pat ourselves on the back for, for what we have done. And whether it's individual players that have come up 
in the American soccer system, whether it's the infrastructure that exists in the United States that is so vastly different and improved and better and night and day when it comes to what what I was growing up with, whether it's the media landscape uh, that exists. You know, sometimes we are so reticent to extol the virtues and to praise and celebrate the things that we've done. And part of that is, you know, being American, we always want more. We always want to push and we are always competitive to be better and we never want to rest on our laurels. And that's not something that that I want us to do uh, because we certainly have a long way to go in terms of competing on and off the field. But when we talk about, you know, someone like Darlington Nagby and what he, and what he does, some of the reaction to him and others is that there couldn't possibly be a player playing in the United States or, or an American player that we should celebrate. Uh, there couldn't possibly be somebody that could be good enough to be included in the same sentence as other players around, around the world. And I've never done that, and I just, I just don't buy that. It doesn't mean that we want to be delusional. It doesn't mean that we want to give weight and credit uh, and quality where it doesn't exist. But my point is that we can find quality all over the place. It has existed, it exists, and it's only going to exist more. But saying that something isn't good or isn't of quality simply because it comes from someplace different or someplace that doesn't have a history and tradition uh, relative to other places, I think that that's doing uh, a disservice uh, and, a dis- and it's being disrespectful to either the person or the thing that you are talking about. And so I guess my, you know, uh, my one big thing from today's podcast is, and I, I know I say this, but it, I think it does bear repeating, is that we can be incredibly proud of what we have created. It is different. It is admittedly unique. Uh, and it's only going to get bigger and better. And so this is my pat on the back to everybody. And this is also my kick in the ass because we need equal parts of the pat on the back and the kick in the ass. All right, onward and upward. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, that is it. We will uh, talk again next week. I will be on the road, so I will be coming to you from the road uh, because, as we mentioned in the pod, uh, two big games for the U.S. men's national team. First in uh, New Jersey at MetLife Stadium against uh, Mexico, and then a few days later against Uruguay in St. Louis. I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't spent a lot of time in St. Louis, but I'm going to spend some time there and try to get the lay of the land uh, over there. So uh, I will be on the road, but we will give you the uh, the pod in the road form. So look for that. Thank you as always for tuning in. Uh, send us those questions uh, with the Ask Alexi hashtag, uh, and we will talk again next week. All right, size the day. 